0: Over the last short 15 years of my ministry, I have had the unfortunate experience of watching people fall away from the faith. However you want to describe that, and whatever theological camp you want to stick falling away into, whether you believe no one could ever fall away, or you believe you can fall away as quickly as you get saved, neither of those camps do I subscribe to. But the truth of the matter is, is that people fall away from the faith and the Bible describes it over and over again. It's tragic. I remember the man who used to attend this fellowship, who after a period of years was convinced that he was Jesus Christ, come again. I remember the fellow who sat here month after month hearing the word of God only to fall into a cult. And to deny Jesus Christ and his deity. It was John who said, I have no greater joy than to see my children walk in truth. That's the heart of a pastor. Somebody who teaches or anyone who teaches a class of the Bible of any kind. To watch the recipients be changed by God's truth. From glory to glory. is the greatest joy. It's the thrill. It's the reward. It's the payoff. To watch constant change. There is no greater sadness, tragedy, than to watch people fall away from the faith. I am sure that what Jude saw around him broke his heart. And perhaps it was that broken heart that prompted him to write such a harsh letter like this. In verse 4, we've already written a scene in verse 3 the exhortation to contend earnestly for the faith, something many Christians do not like to do, to put up a good fight for the faith, to defend the truth, to be able to say that's wrong. Verse 4, Jude tells us why it is important to contend earnestly for the faith, something that happened then and still happens today. Let's reread verse 4. Certain men... Maybe we should make it more generic these days. Certain ones have crept in unnoticed. Who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I heard of a story of a man who was really angry about the cost of oats that he used to feed his mule with. And so he resisted it by feeding his mule sawdust. It worked for a while. But by the time the mule was satisfied with the sawdust, he was dead. Now that is something that is true in the spiritual realm. Truth can be replaced by error and oftentimes it will go unnoticed. But if it goes on unchecked for a long period of time, it can bring about spiritual death. Jude knew that. And so he hits this issue head on. Peter knew that. Paul knew that. And Jesus knew that. And all of them actually spoke about it. The first thing it is important to recognize tonight is that there are apostates. Let's get back to biblical terminology. I know a lot of us like to substitute things uh, for new terms. Uh, We say, oh, he is slipping a bit in his walk. Um, the biblical term is apostate. I know we don't like harsh terms, just like instead of saying it's sin, we say it's a hang-up. Instead of saying it's adultery, we like to say it's an affair. The truth of the matter is there are apostates, those who fall away among us. To deny that is to deny a bulk of the New Testament teaching. When Israel left the wilderness. Remember that there was a mixed multitude when they left Egypt, actually going through the wilderness. Some that were really in love with God and some that were just sort of there because they wanted to leave Egypt and they were out for a new adventure. And, you know, hey, let's go to this new land. I'm up for a long trek through the desert. This mixed multitude of people... Represents something I think in every congregation and that is there is always a mixture of people in every assembly, this one notwithstanding. That perhaps in every single group of church-going people across the world there is a mixture of true and false believers. Some more than others, but it's probably true nonetheless. Jesus gave this parable in Matthew chapter 13. Let me read it to you. Jesus told them this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds or tares among the wheat. And then he went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy has done this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling up the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, First collect the weeds, or the tares, and tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. The tares that Jesus is speaking of, is the word that the ancients knew as the plant called the darnel, a small seed that sprouted up into a bush that looked very much like wheat when it was young. You couldn't tell the difference until it grew and matured. The idea here of sowing the tares is that they are sown among the wheat, The idea behind that is they're so close as to form a deception by the enemy that we read about in this parable that had done this. Now, there's a spiritual truth Jesus is getting across. There is nothing so sacred that Satan will not invade. In fact, the more sacred it is, the more he wants to invade it and pervert it. Jesus already spoke about in Matthew chapter 13 about the mustard seed that would grow up into a large bush and the fowls of the air, indicative of evil, would lodge in its branches. Or like leaven that would permeate the entire batch of dough, again indicative of evil that would creep in the church. I heard of a pastor who pastored a rather large church He left his church. He used to teach the Word of God and believe it was the Word of God. He is now a professor at the University of Southern California, teaches religion, does not believe in the Word of God, and does his level best to discourage and dissuade anyone from believing in Orthodox Christianity. He denies the deity of Christ. He tries to stumble students who come into his class those who hold tenaciously to the Bible, love the Bible, want a fellowship, he does his best to stumble them. Apostates, those who fall away, we've already described them, if you've been in our uh, studies, as those involved in heresy, meaning an opinion that is held in opposition to what the church has always believed is true, may look like a real Christian, They are tares among the wheat. They look like the wheat at first. They come to church. They come to Christmas and Easter oftentimes. Oftentimes more tares show up at Christmas and Easter than any other time during the year. But they never live under the truth of what those days represent. The birth of Jesus Christ to save sinners the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to set people free from sin and give them newness of life. They may be very much like the religious formal, uh, formalist who stood up in the temple, remember he was a Pharisee, and said, I'm not like other men. I tithe. I give of what I own. I pray frequently. I'm not like this publican over here. And he started talking up himself and talking down others. But Jesus said that he did not walk away justified. The man who humbled himself and lived under the truth of mercy and repentance, is one who walked away justified. Apostates are the most dangerous people in the church. If you ever wonder who's the most dangerous person in this congregation? It is the people that we are describing, those who have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. They don't have that godly force living within them. But although they have a form of it, they deny it. There is a counterfeit gospel. Every time there's something real, there's something counterfeit. Satan has the old adage, and he believes in it quite regularly, if you can't beat them, join them. And we've mentioned quite frequently that in the early stages of church history, the enemy, Satan, tried to destroy the church by persecuting it. It didn't work. It only grew bigger. It always happens when you persecute a true Christian, he gets more on fire. When that didn't work, he thought, If you can't beat them, join them. Let's pervert the truth from within by sowing tares among the wheat in every assembly. There's a counterfeit gospel. There are counterfeit Christians. In the end times, there will be a counterfeit Jesus Christ called the Antichrist. There will even be a counterfeit Trinity, the Antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet. And so there are apostates among us. I don't say that for you to go sin-sniffing. And to go out of here skeptical, you know, I thought that she was an apostate. She's probably the one. But to recognize that that is a possibility. Paul said to the Galatians, some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he gave this warning. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. Today, the day that you and I live in, is perhaps the most crucial time period in church history for this whole idea of what is a true Christian and what is a false Christian. There is more than ever before a blending of faiths. An eclectic kind of, a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of Buddhism, a little bit of New Age, kind of put it all together. It's a smorgasbord religious kind of an experience. Just take a little here, put it on your plate, decide which is good for you. We've already got the basis of existentialism in this country. Take it into religion. And there you have it. I was faxed an article a couple of weeks ago. It comes from Santa Monica, California. I'd like to read it to you. It is from the uh, Future Scan, which is a publication prepared by Robert, or excuse me, Roger Selbert, Wilshire Boulevard, Santa Monica. The article goes like this Russell Chandler, religious writer for the Los Angeles Times, is the author of the just published Racing Toward 2001. The forces shaping America's religious future. The book takes a look at major forces shaping the future, economics, demographics, technology, politics, etc., through the lens of religion. For example, in discussing the demographics and the shift of population to urban and suburban metropolitan regions, Chandler illustrates how the corresponding shift in values from rural values status quo, sameness, harmony, smallness, and establishment to urban values of change, diversity, conflict management, bigness, and mobility has had profound effect on religious belief and practice. Further, the author explores not only what religious belief and practice will be like in the 21st century America, but also how spiritual perceptions and faith communities are changing right now. Chandler sees a major religious battle shaping up in the coming years between the worldview of New Age and Eastern mysticism versus the Judeo-Christian view of creation, humanity, and redemption. In fact, the book is strongest when discussing the alternative altars of next-age faiths. For the most basic questions in determining religious future are these. Just what is spirituality? And who gets to define it? to quote two of the sources cited by the author, "quote, the struggle to define what it means to be spiritual will be the biggest story of the century," close quote, and "quote, we will be spiritually alive in the 1990s, full of conflict over which spiritualities we will embrace," close quote. In the coming years, we are going to be hearing more and more calls for a return to spirituality But the content of the word spiritual is being drained of its conventional, authentic, biblical meaning and filled instead with anything and everything like deep breathing, Mongolian chanting, whimsical music, the occult, crystal energy, meditation, jogging, or anything new age. Now, when you hear the word jogging, don't feel self-condemned if you exercise. I don't think that's his intent. The context is, is obvious. Through these devices, do those who have been turning secular seek re-spiritualization. In 1978, 61 million Americans had no church or synagogue affiliation. Ten years later, the number of unaffiliated had swelled to 78 million. These new non-affiliates are young, predominantly male, well-educated, more committed to alternative lifestyles, and oriented generally to an ethnic, excuse me, an ethic, of personal growth and self-fulfillment, yet many of them still consider themselves spiritual or religious. An amazing 82% told Gallup interviewers that growing into a deeper relationship with God, however defined, was important to them. Three-fourths of all Americans say that one can be a good Christian without attending religious services. At the same time, 60% say they are more interested in spiritual things than five years ago. The same percentage that reject the idea that a person should be limited to a single faith. Thus, there are legions of believers, but no longer belongers out there. Isn't that an interesting way to put it? Individuals who increasingly feel free to construct their own worldview from many options present in society rather than being bound by the orthodoxy of their particular faith. Without brand name loyalty to a denomination, they are apt to pick up anything from the expanding God shelf. To quote another source cited by the author, quote, they have their own private religions. It's a cultural supermarket. They prepare their own menus of modern mystical activities and recipes for moral commitment. This is interesting. Californians are particularly attracted to the religiously unorthodox. A higher percentage than the rest of the population has had no formal religious identification and a far higher percentage practices Eastern meditation and believes in reincarnation. The likely result of this self-directed approach to religion, writes Chandler, will be cafeteria doctrine and do-it-yourself rituals, a religious atmosphere of floating allegiances, blending of practices, and greater variety. George Barna is quoted as saying, It will be fascinating to watch people develop these new religious philosophies. In all likelihood, they will seek a blend of elements that will give a sense of control over their lives, personal comfort and acceptance, and a laissez-faire lifestyle philosophy. It is likely that from Christianity they will borrow Jesus' philosophy of love and acceptance. From Eastern religions they will borrow ideas related to each person being his or her own God. The center of the universe, capable of creating and resolving issues through his or her own personal power and intelligence. From Mormonism they will extract the emphasis upon relationships and family and toward establishing a greater sense of community. Thus concludes Chandler. If nothing else, future spirituality will be heady and diverse. Its practitioners will be a sundry lot. Closing statement right here. Although many people no longer belong to any explicitly religious group, they do belong to any number of other groups which they consider substitute faiths and through which they participate in religious-like activities. For example, the Sierra Club, the Common Cause counseling classes, group therapy, aerobic ballet, yoga, and martial arts. Now, before you jump to conclusions, listen. These may not sound very spiritual, but to those who invest them with spiritual meaning, they are. Perhaps what we have here is a new version of the old line, quote, I worship God in nature when I'm on the golf course instead of in church on Sunday. Now, That is a trend that if you don't see happening now, you will see happening exponentially in the future, in an increasing amount. Jesus, Peter, Paul, Jude, at least, if not more. But those, the writings that we have in the New Testament, spoke about this falling away from the true faith, the need to contend earnestly because people were slipping into the church unnoticed, they are given a description, a threefold description. They are ungodly. They pervert the grace of God and they deny who Jesus Christ is. Three marks of apostasy. Before we get into those, if we have the time tonight, we just kind of go as we go. We should ask ourselves a question because almost everyone who is a Christian asks this question or asks others, but often people don't form... The correct answer. That is, is judging others wrong? Let me rephrase that. Is judging others always wrong? In other words, do I ever have a right to say, this is right, that is wrong, what you are doing is incorrect, it is wrong, or should we say simply, my opinion is this. However, you can believe however you like and do whatever you want. Is judging always wrong? Well, to answer that, there are times when it is wrong. There's times when it's right. When is it wrong? It's wrong in at least three different ways and three different occasions. Number one, hypocritical judging. Hypocritical judging. It's the old speck and beam syndrome. It's a guy walking around with a beam hanging out of his eye to use Jesus' example and say, Excuse me, but I noticed a small speck of sawdust in your eye this morning, and I'd like to get it out for you. That was an example Jesus used to point out people who point the finger at sin, but they never judge themselves to clean up their own act. They've got a beam hanging out of their eye while they're trying to help others with a little speck of dust. Jesus denounced the Pharisees because they were always pointing their bony legalistic fingers at people, but they failed to take their own advice. Hypocritical judging is wrong, but not all judging is wrong. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said, If God does not save men by truth, He certainly will not save them by lies. Some people will judge, and they will be hypocrites when they judge. They will be guilty of the very thing they are pointing the finger at others and saying, Excuse me, brother, but you're in sin. They will be guilty of it themselves. They will point with one finger, they will have three pointing back at them. However, Does that mean that if a person judges who is a hypocrite, that his assessment is wrong? No. And this is where people get into a problem. Let's say you're being judged by a hypocrite. Let's say somebody observes something in your life, and yet he or she is practicing the same thing, and in hypocrisy they are judging you. Does that mean that their valuation of you is wrong? No. And you should weigh that before the Lord and godly people when they make a judgment at you to see if they are wrong or you are wrong. It doesn't mean necessarily that if there's hypocritical judging that the judgment is wrong. The person doing it is doing it for wrong motivations, yet the assessment may be perfectly correct. There are some Christians who dismiss all critics or evaluations by people saying, well, hey, nobody's perfect. Everybody's got to hang up a problem of sin. Who are they to judge? But you see, anyone who says it's wrong to judge, you're making a judgment, are guilty themselves of passing judgment on someone else. Hypocritical judgment is wrong. Somebody said most of us are umpires at heart. We like to catch balls and strikes and call them on somebody else. Second time the judgment is wrong, and that is unjust judgment. Jesus Christ said, Do not judge according to outward appearance, but judge a righteous judgment. Notice that he said that. He didn't say all judgment is wrong, but the manner in which you do it is wrong. Judge righteously. We are guilty of not always finding out all the facts before we pass a judgment. That's wrong. That's unjust. Dig a little deeper. The scripture says a fool will answer a matter before he hears it. Somebody tells you something about somebody else. You are a fool. If you don't check it out and you believe one source. Scripture says that. That's unjust. Judge a righteous, fair judgment. Jesus commanded you. The third time judgment is wrong is presumptuous judgment. Meaning you have to jump to a huge conclusion. It's presumption. For instance, when somebody dies and they say, Did he go to heaven or hell? What's the answer? I don't know. Based upon what I saw in his life, this is what I believe has happened. The scripture says if you believe in Jesus Christ, confess him with your mouth, you're saved. And he exhibited the fruits and so forth. But I don't know where he is because Jesus says the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. That's under the sole ownership and that's the sole role of Jesus Christ. Another example is using non-essentials as a hallmark for fellowship, like, well, you worship on Saturday, not on Sunday, therefore I can't really fellowship with you, you're not a true Christian. You've been baptized forward instead of backward, so you're not a true Christian. Well, I was sprinkled, oh, even worse. (laughs) Those kinds of non-essentials, it is presumptuous to think that everybody's going to agree with you on everything. In fact, if two people agree on everything, one of them is not thinking. You're going to disagree on certain things, and there are non-essentials. It doesn't matter if you want to be baptized forward, backwards, if you believe the rapture of the church occurs before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or at the end of the tribulation. Hey, it's going to happen sometime. You are not a heretic if you don't agree with me in everything. If you say, well, I disbelieve that the rapture is going to happen before the tribulation like you do, Skip. You're not a heretic. You're inaccurate, perhaps. A heretic? No. We need to learn to distinguish when it comes to fellowship between that which is essential and that which is non-essential. There was a lady who was at an airport and she was waiting for her airplane and so she went to the uh, little airport store and she bought a book and a little bag of cookies. Put it in her purse, sat down, waiting for the plane to be called. She got engrossed in her book and she noticed that a man one seat away from her in the terminal started opening this bag of cookies that were right there between her and and him. She was appalled. He just opened it up, reached in, grabbed a cookie. She was so shocked she didn't know what to do. She just grabbed in, took a cookie, and ate it herself. He took another cookie. And she thought, you know, I can't let him eat all these cookies. They're mine. So she ate another one. They kept going at it until there was one cookie left, and he quickly snatched it, broke it in half. Left the other half, got up and split. In utter shock, she was reaching into her purse to grab a tissue. She said, I can't believe a man would just rip off my cookies. And and, and she was judging him in her heart she noticed in her purse was that unopened bag of cookies that she never took out. It was pure presumption, all of the thoughts that she had for this guy sitting next to her at the airport. He bought them. There are times when judgment is just flat out wrong. When it is hypocritical, when it is unjust, and when it is presumptuous. But there are times when judgment within the church is absolutely right, called for, and biblical. There's a mandate to do it. Again, Jesus said, judge a righteous judgment. Number one is when you judge between truth and error, between good and evil. The Scripture says that we ought to do that. It tells us to do it individually. It tells us to do it corporately. Remember the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, were commended by Paul. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they heard the word of God, received it with joy, but searched the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. We're called upon to do it as a church. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul said, test everything, hold on to that which is good. He wrote a letter to the Corinthians and he said, when there's prophecy that goes on in a church meeting, like the afterglow we're going to have tonight, Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. The judgment spoken about in these cases is not eternal judgment, consigning a person to heaven or hell. But it's maintaining the integrity within the church to discern between a true revelation and a fake revelation. If something is from God or not from God. Every teaching must be tested against the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. You test it by the word of God. Truth from error. Secondly, we are called to judge unrepentant sinners within the church. Somebody involved in some kind of overt, gross sin that refuses to repent, the church is called corporately to expel that person out of its midst. A person or a church that fails to do that when it is known, they don't always know everything that goes on, but when it's brought to their attention, I think will be brought under judgment by God to warn, to exhort, and if need be to expel. Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. If he will not listen, take two or one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three. Women. But if he refuses to listen to them, if he refuses to listen, even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Paul wrote about sexually immoral people in one of his letters. The Corinthians didn't understand what he meant. So he said, I have written you in my letter not to associate immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of the world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. For in that case, you'd have to leave this world. But I am now writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. With such a man do not even eat. For what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those who are inside? You get his drift. It's not to judge eternally, but to maintain the discipline and the integrity of the church by disciplining those who claim to be Christians and refuse to repent of those kinds of sins. It was G. Campbell Morgan who said, A church that is pure is a church that is powerful. So we're called upon to judge. Thirdly, Christians are called upon to judge false versions of Christianity. This is where you get a lot of the hang-ups. This is where you get a lot of people saying, Why do you say that about them? Why do you name their names? Why do you get down on those groups? Okay, they don't believe Jesus is God. Okay, they don't believe in the bodily resurrection. So what? Let's love one another. Let's embrace one another. Not only is that wrong, it's unbiblical. It's unbiblical, therefore it is wrong. And so we are to judge false versions of Christianity and false teachers. There's a lot of rip-offs that come into the church as we read about in verse 4. If what they teach does not fit into the balance of Scripture, if what they teach is heresy, opinion held in opposition to what Christians have always believed, if it's not orthodox, the church is called upon to make a stand. Listen to this. It says in the book of Galatians, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. Can you get any stronger than that? Paul wrote to Titus, warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. In fact, false teachers were named in the early church publicly. If there was no repentance. And if necessary, Paul said, their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection has already passed and they overthrow the faith of some. It's not the only time. Paul said, Alexander the coppersmith has done me much harm. May the Lord reward him according to his works. Publicly denouncing the teaching of these teachers. Now we need to be patient. We need to be flexible. We need to be slow to speak, slow to wrath and quick to listen. But if necessary, we need to make a stand and clearly mark. Listen. We've mentioned it before. If there's a bottle of poison, you mark it before you put it on the shelf. This will kill you. Warning labels on all types of medications. If they're not used correctly, they can kill. It's like that old farmer who kept feeding sawdust to the old mule because he wanted to cut a few corners. He thought, ah, it doesn't matter. A little bit of sawdust, a little bit of oats, a little bit of truth, a little bit of error. What if a pilot thought that way when he was taking you overseas? And he thought, okay, you know, one degree off on my flight plan. You know, who cares? You're going to be in Antarctica eventually. You won't tell one degree at first, but you take that one degree far off in space enough and you'll be far off from your destination. So the church is called upon to judge a righteous judgment. Now in verse 4, great timing. We have 15 minutes. There are three marks of apostates Apostates are first of all ungodly. For we read about certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men, meaning destitute of reverence for God. That's what it means. Destitute of a reverential awe of the Lord. You've got to remember something and you'll see it as we go through this. It all begins with the authority of the Word of God in a person's life. You can never separate doctrine from practice. If you try, you'll you'll be way off base. What you believe will determine how you behave. Doctrine and practice go hand in hand, according to Jude and others. In fact, one author said, he who attempts to stress Christian living by disparaging Christian doctrine is guilty of a most serious blunder. He neglects the important fact that Christian living is rooted in Christian doctrine. Now, an ungodly person may be a good person in the eyes of others. It doesn't mean he's a criminal. It doesn't mean he wears black all the time. It doesn't mean he rips people off. But ungodliness refers to a condition of the heart. Remember, we read in the scripture, Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. The outward appearance has nothing to do with godliness or ungodliness. He might join the Rotary Club, he might be involved in the community, a good voting Republican or Democrat, but he could be an ungodly person, lacking a reverential awe for God, not letting the Lord be Lord in his life. What is a godly person? The scripture describes it in Isaiah 66. This is the one that I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and he trembles at my word. An ungodly person may confess a belief in Jesus Christ. Again, he might attend church even. But he's not submitted to the authority of scripture. He might say, well, I believe in God, but I don't believe in all of it. There's a lot of the scripture I disbelieve. I don't believe that God will punish the ungodly. I don't believe in a wrathful God. I don't believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. I reject the inerrancy of Scripture. He lacks, therefore, a reverential law for God in many areas of his life. The second thing that happens is also found in verse 4. Apostates pervert grace. Notice what he says. Who turn the grace of God into licentiousness. In other words, a person says, Hey, man, I'm saved by grace. Because I'm saved by grace, God's a merited favor. I can do anything I want to. I can live any way I feel like it. I need no accountability. I need no authority. I'm my own before God. And I'm free to live any lifestyle I please because I'm saved by grace. That is exactly one of the things Jude was writing about in this epistle. Remember in our introduction, what were the two things going on inside the early church that Jude writes about? Gnosticism, number one number two antinomianism that is a group of people who said I'm antinomian against the law I'm not saved by law but by grace I can do whatever I want to they pervert the doctrine of grace and they live a lifestyle that's pleasing to just themselves whenever you see a Christian living loose oh you might carry a Bible talk the talk but he's living loose living a lifestyle that is displeasing to God, you are looking at an apostate person. A biblical definition is that person has fallen away. He has crept in. He's a tear among the weeds. He's there with us. But he's not submitted unto God. He's taken grace and perverted it into doing something, whatever he wants to do. Hey, when a man is freed from prison, let's say he gets out of prison after being there a year, is he free then to break the law? because he's paid a debt. No, he's free to keep the law not break it. When you're freed from sin, does that mean you are free to go back and do whatever you feel like again? Or are you now free, as Romans says, to be a slave of God? A Christian who's been changed by an encounter with God sees himself or herself as a slave of God. And it's not a bondage, it's a freedom. Paul says, don't yield yourselves as slaves of unrighteousness, but see yourselves as slaves unto God, slaves of righteousness. Lowell Fillmore said, liberty unregulated by law degenerates into anarchy. In other words, a person says, I can do whatever I want. Now, you and I live in a society like that, where most people say, I live however I please. I make up my own rules. I am subject to no man's regulations. Christians can begin to think that way. Hey, don't lay a trip on me, man. I'm my own person. I'm accountable to no one. That's dangerous. When a person begins to live a lifestyle that he thinks is pleasing to him, he doesn't care if he pleases the Lord or not. And finally, apostates will deny the deity of Jesus Christ. I want you to look at the end of verse 4, and then I would like to give you a most accurate translation. And they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, because there's the word and there, you think he's referring to two people. The Greek construction makes both of those phrases refer to one person. Meaning that Jude is affirming the deity of Jesus Christ. He's saying Jesus is God. And so you could say they deny the only Lord God, which is our Lord Jesus Christ. That would be a, a better translation and the most accurate from the Greek translation. That is exactly what many apostates today deny. They deny that Jesus is God. Oh, he was a good man. He was a moral teacher. He's a great fella. One of many shining lights in the past, but he was not God. And that's one of the marks of an apostate. But John wrote in his epistle, who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Messiah, He is the Antichrist or an Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either, and he who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. I don't know if you have noticed this, but in verse 4, there seems to be a downhill progression. It begins with one stage and inevitably leads downhill to another stage. If you follow the verse again, this apostasy begins with the absence of a real reverence for the Lord what the word ungodly means. Now please turn this tape over to hear the remaining portion of this message. Then he starts twisting things around. Well, you know, I read this a long time ago, but I don't really think it means that now. I'd like to just kind of give my own twist to it. Inevitably, leads to the third stage, an open denial of the rightful place of the Son of God. With that, listen to the warning that Paul gives to Titus in his first chapter of that epistle. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, they are disobedient, and they are unfit for doing anything good. Every time I read the book of Jude, it is a warning. I don't feel condemned, but I often feel convicted. To walk in what the Bible calls true godliness, having a reverence for God, living under His authority, aiming to please the Lord in all things. And on a daily basis, I say, God, if I am lethargic, if I am apathetic about any of these areas, by Your Spirit, please show me. Like David prayed, search me, O God. See if there's anything wicked in me, any wicked way, and lead me in the way everlasting. In these days where there is that blending of religious movements, we are admonished in the Scripture to examine ourselves, to see whether we are in the faith or not. Hey, The the term Christian, man, it's slapped on so much stuff. The little fish sign is found on so many businesses, so many places. That is not the mark of a true Christian. It's time not to judge others unfairly, but to judge ourselves, first of all, fair and square, to make an assessment of our walks before the Lord, how we are walking and pleasing the Lord, to take the beam out of our own eye before we look at specks, and then, in humility, to judge, to discern a righteous judgment. Is the church called upon to judge? You betcha. Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine. How can you do that unless you distinguish what is a swine? You have to make a differentiation and a distinction. Is it ungodly to do that? No, it's godly. But it must be done in humility. And it must be done with accountability. Tonight, in this room, there are probably apostates among us. Those who've come close but never surrendered. Those who carry the label... I'm a Christian. I even have a cool Bible. But perhaps guilty of some of these things, lacking that reverential awe for the Lord, begins with leaving the fear of God, falling back into, I do whatever I want to do. I make my own rules, which will eventually lead to denying the rightful place of Jesus as the Lord and the Son of God. Is it possible... It happened within 60 years of Christianity from its inception. And the Scripture says, in the last days, many will depart from the faith. So we need to take heed to ourselves and to the doctrine. Heavenly Father, You are the searcher of every heart. And we invite You to search our hearts this evening. We invite You along the lines of the prayer of David, your servant, that you would search our hearts because you know us so well. See if there be any wicked way in me, Lord, and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, there are tears among the wheat. There are problems very close to the altar of God. And yet, Father, before we can jump on that bandwagon, we need to examine ourselves before You, openly, honestly. Perhaps best with a group of people who can hold us accountable, who would dare to point a loving finger in our lives and say, this ought not to be so. In the Lord, I admonish and exhort You to change. Lord, if we are called upon to do that, help us to do it. Righteously, in humility, as the scripture says, considering ourselves, lest we also be tempted. Lord, tonight we humble ourselves before you. We desire for you to show us those things that need change so that we can humbly repent of them before you. And be a pure group. Not that we will be without sin, but purified as you reveal who we are and what we need to do. We ask you to do that, Lord, individually and corporately. We confess that you are the Lord of the church, the Lord of our lives. In Jesus' name.